Have you ever experienced a power outage resulting in a blackout? If you think of blood as electricity, the lack of blood flow to the brain is similar to turning off the power source, resulting in a blackout, or fainting. And the problem could be anywhere, at the level of the light bulb, the power generator, or even the wires. Today on our show, we will talk about syncope, the differential diagnosis, different causes, and the general workup. Today, our patient is presenting with syncope, and you are the doctor. Welcome to The Intern at Work, a podcast made by internal medicine residents meant to serve you better on the wards and on call. Today's episode is entitled, Not for the Faint-Hearted. Let's start with our minute physiology. Syncope is a sudden and transient loss of consciousness, secondary to global cerebral hypoperfusion, and is associated with a loss of postural tone, from which recovery is spontaneous and rapid. Some people may experience lightheadedness, where they get the sensation that may faint, but do not actually lose consciousness. This is called pre-syncope, and is like dimming of the lights during a reduction in electrical power. Alright, so now that we've talked about the basic physiology, let's talk about the approach. When you think about syncope, first and foremost you want to assess, is this patient stable? What is their GCS? Are their ABCs stable? What are their vitals? Once you've assured yourself that they are stable, you can then move forward with your assessment. First, we start with a differential diagnosis to rule out syncope mimickers. When you get a referral for syncope, ask yourself, was this true syncope, or was this something else? This can be elucidated with a thorough history, which is the most important to help make a diagnosis. To navigate through the history, you should focus on the pre-event, event, and post-event. What were you doing before the event? Any prodromal symptoms, such as any chest pain, palpitations, nausea, vomiting, or sweating? Any triggers, like the sight of blood, micturition, or exertion? Were there any witnesses to the event? We will work through other important features to ask on the history as we work through the differential of syncope and the causes of true syncope. A common mimicker of syncope is seizures. To differentiate a seizure from syncope, remember that seizures result in loss of consciousness that tends to last longer than a syncopal transient loss of consciousness. On history from witnesses, you may find that the patient had a sudden loss of consciousness, often associated with an aura, tongue biting, incontinence, and tonic or clonic movements. Seizures are often followed by a postictal phase, versus with syncope, you should expect a more spontaneous and rapid recovery. Remember that syncope can also cause transient myoclonic jerks that can be mistaken by seizures due to cerebral hypoperfusion. Hypoglycemia can also mimic syncope, as low blood sugar can create similar sensation. Hypoglycemia can also mimic syncope, as low blood sugar can create a similar sensation. However, hypoglycemic syncope is very uncommon affecting only 1.9% of diabetic patients using insulin therapy. It is clinically characterized by brief periods of unconsciousness with slow recovery, associated confusion and loss of memory without loss of postural tone. So be sure to ask if the patient is diabetic and on insulin. And what was their blood glucose when the event happened? You also want to rule out other metabolic mimickers of syncope, such as reduced oxygen concentration in the blood, or hypoxia, which can also lead to a transient loss of consciousness. Hypothyroidism resulting in mixedema coma may also be mistaken for syncope. 
but remember these patients present with hallmark symptoms of decreased mental status and hypothermia, hyponatremia, hypotension, hypoglycemia, bradycardia, hypoventilation, and generalized edema. Various psychiatric illnesses, such as panic and anxiety disorders, and major depression, may also present with loss of consciousness, where again the history is extremely important to rule this out as a cause. For instance, a patient may have a panic attack, hyperventilate, and then feel lightheaded or faint as a result of decreasing their blood CO2 from excessive hyperventilation. On the other hand, psychogenic pseudosyncope, also known as PPS, is a common cause of apparent transient loss of consciousness with a dramatic impact on the quality of life. The key feature in the history of patients with PPS is the occurrence of frequent, long attacks of apparent transient loss of consciousness with closed eyes. The diagnosis is certain when a typical event is recorded during a tilt table test with simultaneous blood pressure, heart rate, and video electroencephalographic recordings. Home video and blood pressure recordings during an attack can be very useful. Remember, you should be able to narrow down on most of your differential diagnosis from the history. Now say you're sure from the history that this was not a syncope mimicker. So we'll now talk about the etiologies of true syncope and history pearls you may want to ask. True syncope can be broken down into cardiac and non-cardiac. Let's first talk about the non-cardiac causes. Non-cardiac syncope can be neurocardiogenic or neurally mediated and account for up to 80% according to the American Heart Association. Vasovagal is a type of neurally mediated syncope. This happens because of a sudden withdrawal of the sympathetic nervous system activity and overdrive or overcorrection from your parasympathetic nervous system. On the history, you may find that these episodes occur after a trigger, such as sudden changes in position, prolonged standing, extreme pain, fear, and emotional events. These patients tend to have a very typical prodrome or warning symptoms, where they may experience sudden yawning, lightheadedness, an uneasy feeling, nausea, sweating, ringing in the ears, or blurry vision. The recovery is quick and there are no neurological sequelae. However, there is often a feeling of profound fatigue or a feeling washed out after recovery from a vasovagal episode. People who have frequent episodes may be able to recognize the warning signals and lie down, thereby aborting the syncope. Situational, another type of neurocardiogenic or neurally mediated syncope, may occur with episodes during or immediately after micturition, cough, swallowing, or defecation. There are mechanoreceptors in the esophagus, lungs, bladder, cervix, and rectum, which trigger the sympathetic withdrawal and increase the parasympathetic nervous system activity, resulting in a decrease in heart rate and or blood pressure, and hence syncope. Increased intrathoracic pressure from a cough, sneeze, or the valsalva maneuver, or weightlifting, can also result in syncope by decreasing preload to the heart. These patients also experience a similar prodrome as patients with vasovagal syncope, but with a different trigger, as mentioned above. Carotid sinus syncope is also a type of neurocardiogenic syncope. Patients may experience a syncopal event because of pressure on the carotid sinus. This activates the vagus nerve and slows heart rate by inhibiting the sinus node and slowing conduction through the AV node. This is a normal response. However, in patients with carotid sinus hypersensitivity, this reflex is exaggerated. This response can be either cardio-inhibitory, where a patient may experience asystole for three seconds or more with stimulation of their carotid sinus, or vasodepressive, 
or they may experience an exaggerated drop in their systolic blood pressure at 50 millimeters of mercury or more due to sudden sympathetic withdrawal, or the response may be mixed. Carotid sinus syncope may be due to tumors next to the carotid sinus body, shaving, or tight collars, for example. So be sure to ask and look for this on physical exam. Next, another very important non-cardiac cause to consider is orthostatic syncope, associated with orthostatic hypotension. When you're lying down or sitting for a long time, you can get a pooling of the blood in the venous system. Normally, when you stand, there's a transient drop in blood pressure because of this venous pooling in the lower parts of the body. So arterial baroreceptors cause an increase in the sympathetic outflow, leading to an increased heart rate, vasoconstriction of the systemic resistance vessels to increase blood pressure. In orthostatic syncope, this normal physiologic response does not happen. So patients experience a drop in the blood pressure when they go from sitting or lying down to standing, and may faint as a result. There is no vagal hyperactivity associated with this venous pooling, and this distinguishes orthostatic syncope from neurocardiogenic syncope. Now, after diagnosing someone with orthostatic syncope, your job is not done. It is important to investigate the cause of orthostasis. Orthostatic hypotension may be a consequence of transient or chronic volume depletion. If there is a lack of intravascular volume, the patient's blood pressure does not become sufficiently increased, regardless of the increase in heart rate from the sympathetic nervous system. Therefore, it is important to rule out reasons for volume depletion, such as gastrointestinal bleeding, dehydration, maybe due to a lack of oral intake, lots of diarrhea or vomiting, excessive diuresis from medications like furosemide, or the use of vasodilating drugs or antihypertensives like ACE inhibitors, calcium channel blockers, and even beta blockers that may prevent the heart rate from increasing to compensate. Orthostatic hypotension may also occur as a result of dysautonomia, where the compensatory mechanism initiated by arterial baroreceptors to increase blood pressure does not occur. Primary dysautonomia may occur because of primary pure autonomic failure or multiple system atrophy, which is a Parkinson's plus syndrome, and patients present with other symptoms of Parkinsonism, such as tremors, rigidity, and dementia. Secondary dysautonomia may be a result of diabetic neuropathies, alcoholic neuropathies, adrenal insufficiency, perineoplastic syndromes, and prolonged periods of physical inactivity. Older patients are particularly at risk of orthostatic hypotension and syncope because of altered baroreceptor responsiveness, polypharmacy, such as with multiple antihypertensive medications, and the increased risk of volume depletion. Another entity that is useful to know that doesn't commonly cause syncope but is associated with orthostatic intolerance is postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome or POTS. POTS is an often underdiagnosed form of dysautonomia that is associated with the presence of excessive tachycardia and many other symptoms upon standing. It is estimated to impact between 1 and 3 million Americans and millions more around the world have POTS. POTS is a form of orthostatic intolerance. The current diagnostic criteria for POTS is a heart rate increase of 30 beats per minute or more or over 120 beats per minute within the first 10 minutes of standing in the absence of orthostatic hypotension. Another cause of non-cardiac syncope can be related to the blood vessels themselves. For instance, a significant and massive pulmonary embolism can result in a reduction in cardiac output by decreasing preload to the left side of the heart, especially with exertion. This can result in pre-syncope and even syncope. You may expect your patient to present with hypoxia, chest pain, tachycardia prior to the syncopal episode, 
and have risk factors for thromboembolism, such as immobility, cancer, or a history of blood clots. Similarly, significant pulmonary hypertension may also result in syncope with exertion. Aortic dissection may also result in syncope, but these patients tend to have other significant symptoms, such as tearing chest pain through the back and a pressure and pulse differential in between arms. Syncope in the setting of aortic dissection indicates the development of cardiac tamponade or involvement of the brachiocephalic vessels, decreasing blood flow to the brain. Another vessel abnormality is subclavian steel syndrome. An occlusion of the proximal subclavian artery results in the flow reversal of the vertebral artery, giving rise to vertebrobasilar insufficiency and hence decreased perfusion to the brainstem or brain itself. Stroke can also, but very rarely, cause syncope. In order for a stroke to do so, it needs to cut off blood flow to both hemispheres. So generally, patients may have a syncopal episode with a basilar stroke or vertebral insufficiency, where you lose blood flow to the reticular activating system. Since these tend to be posterior circulation strokes, patients may also complain of vertigo, dysarthria, and or diplopia, and perhaps even a headache prior to the episode. Particular subtypes of stroke that affect the back of the brain may result in a sudden loss of stability and a fall, but maintain consciousness, and are known as drop attacks. Intracranial hemorrhages, such as subarachnoid hemorrhages, can also result in a syncopal event. Now that we have talked about non-cardiac syncope, another cause of syncope that raises a lot of concern. Could this patient have cardiac syncope? Cardiac abnormalities can cause syncope through a temporary reduction of blood flow to the brain. Remember cardiac output is equal to heart rate times stroke volume. So if the heart's electric system malfunctions, producing a heart rate that is abnormally slow or fast, or if there is an obstruction of blood flow out of the heart caused by a narrow heart valve or a thick heart muscle, you will decrease your cardiac output and hence blood flow to the brain. On history, what raises your suspicion for cardiac syncope? Syncope that occurs during exertion or is associated with a prodrome of chest pain or palpitations, or even the lack of prodrome prior to the episode, is sudden, lasting a short amount of time, recurrent, and not positional, are all worrisome features for cardiac syncope. Other features that should raise concern for cardiac syncope are if your patient has a personal history of cardiac disease, such as arrhythmias, left ventricular dysfunction, heart failure, ischemic heart disease, or aortic stenosis, or a family history of unexplained syncope or sudden death. These should all raise red flags for the potential of cardiac syncope. Now, cardiac syncope can be broken down into a structural problem or electrical problem. Structural heart disease, such as aortic stenosis, can result in exertional syncope. This would be best diagnosed with a clinical examination, and if you need a refresher, you can refer back to our previous episode, A Tight Valve, to see how aortic stenosis can present an examine, and order an echo to confirm the diagnosis. Other structural conditions include mitral stenosis, dilated cardiomyopathy, where the heart is more prone to underlying arrhythmias and has a reduced pumping function or stroke volume, and hence low cardiac output, especially with exertion, and cardiac tamponade, where the heart has a reduction in preload because of compression of the right ventricle, resulting in less preload to the left side of the heart, and hence low cardiac output. For coronary artery disease or acute coronary syndrome to result in syncope, you need significant ischemia to cause an arrhythmia that decreases cardiac output. Hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy, or HOCAM, is another obstructive cause that results in exertional syncope, but often since these patients are prone to arrhythmias like ventricular tachycardia, which is the cause of their syncope. 
This leads us to electrical problems in the heart that can cause syncope. Narrow complex tachyarrhythmias, such as supraventricular tachycardia, such as atrioventricular tachycardia, AVRT, or AV nodal reentry tachycardia, AVNRT, occur in people with otherwise structurally normal hearts and result in palpitations, dyspnea, and feeling unwell, but can rarely or uncommonly result in syncope. On the other hand, rapid atrial fibrillation or ventricular tachycardia, either monomorphic ventricular tachycardic or polymorphic ventricular tachycardia, such as torsades, are more likely to cause syncope. The heart rate is so fast that stroke volume drops because there's not enough diastolic filling time, resulting in a decreased cardiac output and hence syncope, and sometimes sudden cardiac death. Causes of tachyarrhythmias can be underlying cardiac structural or electrical abnormalities, some of which include arrhythmogenic right ventricular dysplasia, which is an autosomal dominant condition that results in the replacement of portions of the right ventricle with adipose and fibrous tissue, which can result in VT. On ECG, you may see inverted T waves in V1 to V3, and occasionally an epsilon wave, which is a terminal notch of QRS complex in lead V1. Brigada syndrome is another condition that can result in syncope, as patients may experience ventricular tachycardia or ventricular fibrillation. It is an autosomal dominant condition resulting in mutations in the sodium channel subunit gene, SCN5A. On ECG, you would see prominent ST elevation in leads V1 to 3 and a pseudo-right bundle branch block. Another arrhythmogenic abnormality to be concerned about is a prolonged QT, which can either be acquired from medications or electrolyte abnormalities, or it could be congenital. A long QT interval can result in torsades and potentially ventricular fibrillation. On ECG, you will see a corrected QT that is prolonged, more than 450 milliseconds for men and more than 470 milliseconds in women. Those with ventricular arrhythmias often have a baseline QTC of over 500 milliseconds. Catecholaminergic polymorphic ventricular tachycardia can also present with syncope or cardiac arrest due to ventricular tachycardia or fibrillation, but is classically precipitated by emotional or physical stress. The ECG during sinus rhythm is generally normal, but during an episode, you may see typical polymorphic ventricular tachycardia with continuously varying QRS morphology, similar to that seen in patients with acute ischemia or non-ischemic cardiomyopathies, or a bidirectional ventricular tachycardia demonstrating alternance of the QRS complexes in both leads. In addition to tachyarrhythmias, bradyarrhythmias can also result in syncope. Bradyarrhythmias, more commonly a high second-degree AV block or complete heart block, or severe sinus bradycardia, decrease cardiac output because the heart rate drops. Bradycardia is associated with a more prolonged QT interval, and PVCs can land more commonly on the T wave, possibly precipitating torsades. Refer to the podcast on bradyarrhythmias for more details on the different types of heart blocks. Now that we have worked through the differential diagnosis and causes of true syncope, let's move on to the physical exam. For the physical exam, focus on the vitals, including orthostatic vitals and blood pressure in both arms. For orthostatic vitals, check their blood pressure and heart rate while the patient is lying down or sitting, and then ask them to stand up, wait about two minutes, and then recheck their vitals. An increase in the heart rate of 30 beats per minute a systolic blood pressure drop of greater than 20 millimeters of mercury, or diastolic blood pressure drop of greater than 10 millimeters of mercury during the first two to three minutes of standing, or symptoms of feeling lightheaded upon standing is considered positive for orthostatic hypotension associated to orthostatic intolerance.
A thorough cardiac examination with special attention to abnormal heart sounds and murmurs is extremely important to assess for any obstructive cardiac cause. As well, a detailed neurological evaluation will ensure you're not missing a posterior stroke. The history and physical examination provide most of the clues to the diagnosis. Alright, let's talk about workup. The workup is guided by history and physical and what you think is the most likely cause. Ask for the most recent JAMA Rational Clinical Examination. Findings most associated with cardiac syncope include atrial fibrillation or flutter, known severe structural heart disease, history of heart failure, and age at first syncopal spell being 35 years or older. In addition, dyspnea or chest pain prior to an episode of syncope or witness cyanosis during the episode were also associated with a higher likelihood of cardiac syncope. On the other hand, age younger than 35, mood changes or prodromal preoccupation with details or headache prior to the episode, and mood changes after syncope and inability to remember behavior prior to syncope were all associated with lower likelihood of cardiac syncope. The most important investigation to order in every patient when you assess them is a 12-lead ECG. This can help identify any underlying electrical abnormality. For specific ECG abnormalities, pay attention to the PR and QT intervals, ST segments, and the width of the QRS complex. And you can review the differential of cardiac syncope that we talked about earlier during the podcast. Only if you are suspicious for a cardiac structural cause, or you hear a murmur on your physical exam that is concerning for an obstruction, order an echocardiogram to rule out structural heart disease such as hokum, aortic stenosis, left ventricular dysfunction, or other entities such as arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy. A tilt table test is indicated for syncope dilemmas, including recurrent unexplained syncope, suspicious of vasovagal syncope in high-risk patients, syncope versus seizures, syncope versus pseudosyncope, autonomic dysfunction, and POTS. Do not refer patients for tilt table tests with obvious diagnosis of vasovagal syncope. Use a syncope score, such as a Calgary syncope score, to make the diagnosis, which identifies patients with vasovagal syncope with very high sensitivity, 89%, and specificity, 91%. If the history sounds suspicious for a cardiac etiology, continuous cardiac monitoring, such as Holter monitor, external loop recorder, event recorder, and implantable loop recorder, can also be useful in hopes to be able to catch a malignant arrhythmia or transient heart block. And if you're still highly suspicious of a cardiac arrhythmia as a cause in the patient, consult cardiology for further investigations. If you're suspicious for a seizure, consider an EEG. Or in the case of stroke, you can order an MRI or CT angiogram of the brain to assess the posterior fossa and posterior cerebral vessels. Do not order neuroimaging in patients without neurological findings, since the diagnostic yield is very low. This is a recommendation from Choosing Wisely Canada. Order blood tests as clinically indicated. Complete blood count and hemoglobin to assess for the potential of hemorrhage or bleeding. Oxygen saturation and blood gas analysis when hypoxia is suspected. Troponin when cardiac ischemia-related syncope is suspected. Or D-dimer when pulmonary embolism suspected, etc. Now to help you further risk stratify your patient presenting with syncope, there are many scores out there. One you can use is the Canadian Syncope Risk Score. This is a score developed to identify the risk of serious adverse events within 30 days of emergency department disposition. The risk tool consists of nine predictors, 
with a score for each predictor ranging from minus 2 to plus 2, with a potential total score of minus 3 to plus 11. Vasovagal predisposition, heart disease, anisystolic BP less than 90 or greater than 180, elevated troponin over the 99th percentile, abnormal QRS access, less than negative 30 or greater than 100, QRS duration over 130 milliseconds, or QTC interval greater than 480 milliseconds, or ED diagnosis of cardiac or vasovagal syncope are included in these criteria. You can easily use this score online, and if you find that your patient is deemed high risk for the score, it is important to further carefully evaluate the patient and conduct further investigations as required. Remember, most investigations are only indicated in a small number of patients with specific diagnostic questions. Low-risk patients do not need further investigations and can be safely discharged home. Alright, now the last quick point is about management. Remember that syncope is a symptom and can result from many different etiologies, so treat the underlying cause. For cases of cardiac syncope, refer to your colleagues in cardiology for further investigations or intervention, such as an ICD or pacemaker if appropriate. Alright, that's all for today. Thank you for listening to today's episode entitled Not for the Faint Hearted. This episode was written by Dr. Nikita Malhotra, cardiology fellow, and reviewed by Dr. Juan Newsman, general internist, Dr. Craig Ainsworth, cardiologist, and Dr. John Neary, general internist. This episode was recorded and produced by Leah Carianopoulos. Music by Lakshmi Santamala. The Internet Work series was created by Allison Lyon and developed by Leah Carianopoulos and Zara Morali and is overseen by Dr. Daniel Mar Vegas. Again, there's a cheat sheet on our website that you can download for further reference and reading materials. If you enjoyed this podcast, please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to The Internet Work, and we hope to see you again soon.